Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, nonetheless, in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Selena Jogaloo. Selena is the owner of Pretty Woman, a multi-award winning beauty salon brand in Hampshire. Selena, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us, uh, Selena. It's certainly a uh, nice day for it. Now, um, I think it's fair to say, if we look to establish your take on leadership, that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders having to chart a course through this pandemic and through this uncharted territory. Tell me, for somebody working within the services industry, such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. It certainly has been a a testing time um, and something that we've never been through before as a business um, and navigating our way through um, the, the changes which seem to happen quite quickly in some respects has, has, has been a challenge um, and I think trying to keep um, the team feeling uh, you know safe and secure um, not only physically but you know for their long-term job security uh, it, it has been quite a challenging time and I think as a leader of a team I've had to be very um, much more communicative um, perhaps than, than previously um, and to try and sort of you know calm any anxieties or concerns about the future. Mm, exactly right um, I think keeping the communication channels open um, in the everyday uh, scenario is hugely important from a leadership point of view, but no more so than now for sure. When we're all essentially working from a distance, um, there is a lot of uncertainty as well. And alongside that, a lot of people are looking to the leaders of um, the businesses that they work for for that much needed reassurance as well, aren't they, Selena? And that comes with its own pressures, doesn't it? Because amid all of the uncertainty, the leader at the top of it all may not necessarily know that much more than the people around them. And providing that reassurance, therefore, can sometimes be quite difficult, I guess. It, it can. There was a period which felt like a lifetime where we knew that um, closure was imminent. Um, and uh, we didn't know how long it was going to be, uh, you know, we were going to be forced to close for. And at the same time, we hadn't heard from our Chancellor what support there was going to be for businesses. Um, And that was an incredibly difficult time. At that point, um, I I did, I was actually quite proactive with, with my team. I've spent a long time building a team that I'm incredibly happy with. Everybody has their strengths. We work together really, really well. Um, and I didn't want to lose anybody. So at that point, I made a commitment to my whole team that I would make no redundancies. And I hadn't yet heard from the Chancellor what help was going to be available. Um, so it felt like a, a bit of a gamble in some ways. Um, particularly as we didn't know how long this crisis was going to go go on for. But I just felt really confident that we would reopen, that 
when we did reopen, I wanted to, you know, we, we went into this crisis strong. I wanted to come out of it strong. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a gamble, but I think it, I hope it pays off. <laughs> Mm, uh, absolutely it's it's there's a lot of uncertainty um, at the moment and people don't really know what the year uh, the future holds but what the government has done um, has been a tremendous help um, in terms of the business safeguarding measures the job retention scheme small business loans for example and yet there's still been of course some criticism from certain quarters of um, their approach um, maybe they weren't proactive enough in introducing the lockdown quickly compared to say the Italians for example who introduced their lockdown on the 9th of March and we didn't follow suit until the 23rd Tell me, Selena, if we take that sort of idea away from politics and away from this time of crisis just for a moment, when you're sort of leading the business, are you more inclined when difficulties do arise in the day to day to dive straight in and then try and get on top of it as soon as possible? Or do you take a little bit more of a backseat, see how matters develop and then take action from there? Um. I think that, um, I mean, I've had uh, my first salon for 10 years and I would say um, 10 years ago, I was very much in a reactive mode, um, perhaps because there was less of a buffer behind me, obviously being a startup. Um, so, yeah, I used to be a lot more kind of reactive, um, you know, make quick decisions. But I think now I've got the two salons, I have a lot more, um, therapist working for me and because we have the history of you know the salons and we have a little bit of a buffer we can just pause reflect do our analysis before making any big decisions and I actually think it's a lot it, it's a better way to do business um, hindsight's a wonderful thing <laughs> but um, yeah I think uh, you know taking stock and making those decisions in a in a, a rational way is, is certainly a better approach. And do you think that although it's been a really awful time for a great deal of people, that there are some positives to be drawn from the experience of managing a crisis such as this and getting through to the other side in that sense that it breeds resilience and it's really brought people together? I think that there are huge positives to take from this situation, I think it's it's given everybody a chance to pause and to really think about where where do you want to go, where where what do you want to achieve, what do you want your future to look like, what have you enjoyed about lockdown, and what have you not enjoyed about lockdown? Um, and I think we are going to see um, some perhaps you know some changes going forward. I don't. It's not going to be flick a switch and then we all go back to normal. Um, I would like to see the pace of life just generally slow slightly and for for us to kind of take stock of what we have. Mm, I think that's certainly uh, something that is going to uh, happen going forward and hopefully we certainly don't lose sight of those positive things that we've really um, focused on during this lockdown period as well, such as that renewed focus on mental health and well-being for starters. Um, considering that we've also heard a lot of great stories during this time, Selena, of how people have really mucked in just to keep their businesses ticking over, whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've had to continue going into work on site. Has the reaction of those people around you, such as friends, colleagues has that been a source of inspiration for you um yes i have to say i think that um there's been an awful lot of um posi- you know positivity and you know going into the shops to do your your weekly shop and 
seeing shop workers there effectively putting their lives at risk so that we can all be fed. Um, I do think it is inspirational. And, you know, obviously we talk about the NHS and the things that, um, you know, the, the nurses and the doctors have done putting the, their lives in danger. But actually on a on an everyday scale, um, just going to your local shop or, you know, some of the, the things that are a bit closer to us, I, I just think... Yes, it has been quite inspirational to to see that. I also have been very touched by the amount of people that have reached out um, to me personally just to check, is everything okay? How are you getting on? How are you coping with the children? How are you coping with not working? Um, and it's been really nice to reconnect um, with some people that I haven't been in touch with for a little while. And I think leaders who are connecting in that way with their staff continuously during this period are going to be getting the most out of them as well because it's so much easier to take people with you when you show that you're of course safeguarding their interests um, as a leader um, as well. Um, we talked about of course how the reaction of people during this period has been a source of inspiration uh, Selena of course but throughout your career are there any other notable people or other things that maybe have been an inspiration to you and perhaps even had an influence on you as you develop through your career? Um, yes, I well, I, I wasn't always in beauty. I used to work in IT, um, and I um, have had uh, several managers within the corporate environment um, who uh, I, I've learned an awful lot from. Um, moving from a from large corporate into running my own business, I've taken um, a lot of the. Uh, structure and the um, paperwork and things like that, I, I was able to kind of reuse and, and pinch some of that knowledge. Um, and I, yeah, it has been a hu- hugely beneficial uh, for me. Um, uh, one manager that, that sticks out for me is a, a manager that I had at Hewlett Packard who um, really took me under his wing. Um, it was my first professional job, I suppose. Uh, and I, I, you know, went in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, really not knowing much about the world. Um, and I was really taken under his wing and he did help me on that first step of my career. I think those are some really interesting examples, uh, Selena, in the sense that these are people who are mentors within the uh, the business world, some of them that you've mentioned. Um, reason being um, is because when we think of leaders more generally in this country, I think we're tempted to instantly associate that word with people such as politicians, such as celebrities, sports personalities as well. And therefore, recognition for those really influential people in the business world who go about their business quietly, don't stick their heads above the parapet and are really mentor figures that recognition isn't always really there, is it? It can fall by the wayside. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that maybe we don't recognise and indeed celebrate um, the achievements and the leadership of those sorts of figures enough? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. And I think there's there's an awful lot of mentoring, buddying um, that, that goes on that, that you know, really, I, I wouldn't have been running my own business today if it wasn't for the things that I learned from various managers and mentors, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. Um, And I think it's, you know, it's a very personal thing to find a coach, find a mentor that, that is, will give you their knowledge and their time, which after all is the most valuable thing that they can share with you. 
Exactly right. It's important um, in this sense uh, to remember as well um, for those younger and emerging leaders that you're not necessarily a lone wolf, are you? You don't have to do it alone. And there are so many people out there that you can learn from, whether it's directly as in a sort of mentor system, as we've just discussed, or even just by reading upon um, their books, um, as simple as that. Yeah, and I think that information has has never been more widely available. I mean, things, you know, podcasts that we're we're doing now um, and just, you know, general social media, there's an awful lot of of information out there. And at the moment, there's a huge amount of free content um, that's been made available during this pandemic. And I think it's a time to, you know, if if you're able to really work on, yourself and your personal development and and your future. And you've, of course, um, got over 10 years experience, as you said earlier, uh, Selena, in uh, your field. So if you had to give some advice to somebody who is about to embark on a leadership role for the first time, what sort of advice would you give them? Uh, (laughs) That's a difficult question. Um, Because the reason I think that's difficult is because everybody's path is so different. um, And Every year, I've, I, you know, every month, day, week um, that I've managed people, I've, I've learned uh, a new, something new. Um, but I would say to, I think when I first started out um, in my career, I was just very, um, made decisions quite quickly. And, um, you know, it was all kind of very reactive. And I think just stopping, taking the time, reflecting, making decisions, slowly to make sure that they're the correct ones is is often the right thing to do. I think that's very sound advice um, indeed uh, myself Selena and if we do continue as well to focus on the future also before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself for Pretty Woman and also what you hope to achieve in that time not just in getting through COVID-19 but also for beyond this terrible situation as well. Well, I feel really confident about the future. Um, as I said earlier, we went into this, as a business, we went into this pandemic very strong. Um, and I know that we're going to come out of the other side of it strong too. Um, I've got a great team. Um, we've got apprentices that we've, we've you know, brought, brought along that are ready to kind of um, flourish and uh, to take their role as a therapist within the team. Um, so actually... You know, I, I feel really, really positive about the future um, and I just want to continue to develop my team, continue to um, work on the training and the new treatments that we've, we've got coming up the line. Um, yeah, and just sitting here waiting <laughs> for when that will be. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all about, um, of course, just waiting to see things begin to uh, open up and go on that upward trajectory again, for sure, Selena. And I think as things do start to change and we start to understand more about what this new market environment and working environment will look like and how things are going to develop in the future, we could perhaps even catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how the business is doing and how the day-to-day running um, of things has resumed and maybe changed uh, compared to uh, before, for sure. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I'd really enjoy that. I think it would be great to have a retrospective look at this. It's a shame that we're just about out of time um, on the programme today. Otherwise, we could discuss it um, all day, of course. But um, thank you ever so much, um, Selena, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure, but also a really informative experience as well. Um, I really do appreciate uh, your time to come on and speak with me. Well, for thank the you for your benefit. time. Thank you for having me. 
Likewise, um, Selena, and also do take care and stay safe as well with everything still going on in the meantime. You too. That was Selena Jogaloo, the owner of Pretty Woman. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.